We can go. Am I on? Good. Let's uh, let's go ahead and get started. There may be a few more coming in, but they can uh, they can catch up. I will apologize ahead of time. Uh, I've had a cold all week, and yesterday I started coughing. So uh, sometimes it's uncontrollable. So if I do, I will try to remember to remove the earpiece <laughs> <coughs> so that we don't make the neighbors wonder what in the world's going on over here. Um, Revelation, we are uh, jumped in last week, kind of did some introductory things. Any questions from last week? I know we, we had a number of them at the end, and I didn't want to cut anyone short. So, okay. Um, tonight we are going to dive into the seven churches. Uh, I have given you a map uh, there on the. If, Sorry if it didn't copy real well. It's tough to find a really good map that copies well. Um, they try to make them all colorful, and colors just don't copy in black and white. So, um, But it kind of gives you an, a, a rough idea of where these churches uh, are located. If you notice, just south of center is the isle, island of Patmos, uh, or where at least they're, they're pretty sure that's where it was, just off the shores of, of Ephesus. And uh, that's where John was at when he received <coughs> this revelation. So uh, let's open with a word of prayer, and then we're going to jump into uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, and then chapters 2 and 3 this evening. Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful that you uh, have seen fit to give us your word, to give us your truth. Father, we know that all truth comes from you and that uh, you have... Uh, have shared with us everything that we need to know. And so, Father, tonight, would you open up what we need to know? Uh, may we learn from these seven churches and, uh, and what Jesus was telling them. Might we learn from them for our own church, for our own lives, and for this community. Father, we thank you again that you're a God of truth, and uh, we pray tonight that we would get a glimpse of that truth in a new way uh, that maybe we haven't heard before or seen before. We just ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> okay, Revelation chapter 1. Uh, John's really now getting into uh, this vision uh, after he kind of set up the introductory uh, matters. He says, uh, John chapter 1, verse 9, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and, and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God. And the testimony of Jesus, he was there uh, exiled. Remember, we talked last week that he was probably the only apostle that was not martyred, um, but he was sent into exile rather than executed. And I think believed in God's will for the purpose of receiving uh, this revelation. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. 
When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay, so here we are. <coughs> he's uh, in the spirit, which probably means he's in a, in a time of worship and a time of prayer, maybe intense prayer, uh, when this voice, booming voice, comes in behind him, and he turns uh, to see who it is, and he says it is one like the Son of Man. Well, we know that this messenger is Jesus Christ, um, because what he says is in red letters in my Bible. So all the words of Christ are in red letters, so we know that it's Jesus. Actually, we know it's Jesus because of what he said. He said, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of, of uh, death and Hades. So we know just by his introduction of himself that this is Jesus that, uh, that John is, is talking to, and John falls down and worships him. And uh, he said, I, I fell at his feet as though dead. He fell down and, and worshipped him. And Jesus accepted that worship. Um, I think later on, John's going to fall down before an angel. And the angel will say, no, 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 don't worship me. Uh, but Jesus accepted. This, this person accepted that worship. And so it has to be none other than Jesus for, for a lot of those reasons. And he speaks on his own authority. It's not someone told me to tell you this. He's just speaking. Uh, as his own. Uh, his appearance, uh, some things that we can see, he had white hair, uh, white being the bright, the brilliance, the glory, that's kind of the symbolic, when it's white, it's, it's pure, um, true, uh, and, and the glory of, of God in the midst of that. Uh, from his clothing, we see that he, uh, he dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet. Uh, he had a robe and a sash, and this was the same work uh, this, the same type of dress that was used of the high priest. Uh, the high priest wore a robe and a sash, and it's the, it's the same type of thing uh, that, that, he was, that he was wearing that the high priest wore. And so we see that Jesus now is kind of presenting himself as our high priest. Uh, and so what was the high priest's job? The high priest's job was to go before God on behalf of the people. And so Jesus has now assumed that position assumed that, uh, that role as our high priest. And so he is going to God on our behalf. Um, and John sees him clothed the way that a high priest would be clothed. Now we get then the seven lampstands. And what does he say that the seven lampstands are? They're the seven churches. Okay, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. Kind of gives us an idea of what these uh, lampstands, why, why would the church be represented by a lampstand? It says, you are the light of the world. City on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So when we picture the church as a lampstand, it, it really is the, the way in which it brought light into a dark room or a dark place. 
And so you don't light the, the, the candle, you don't light the light and then place it under a bushel. You set it out where everyone can see it. And so Jesus is really saying this is the way the church should be. The church ought to be a light in a very dark world. And we don't want to hide that light. We want to put it right out there where everyone can see. And so the lampstands represent each of the churches. Um, and then we have the seven stars. Now, this is where the, the interpretation may get a little tricky. Um, <coughs> he has the seven stars, and it says that they are the angels of the seven churches. Um, Jesus uses a word that could be translated angels or messengers. Um, and it's probably better to understand these angels as messengers, not as angels the way we think of angelic beings, that uh, there's an angel assigned to every church. That That's probably not the best way to understand what Jesus is saying here. Um, it's best in this context to understand them as messengers of the church, as possibly even the leadership of the church or the, the pastor of the church, uh, the one who's bringing uh, the message to the church, uh, because it, it's not angels as Jesus would uh, not have delivered a divine revelation to the angels. He would have through a human because this is John delivering the message to the angel. See, if you look at chapter two, verse one, it says and it says this before each of the churches are introduced to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? Now, if Jesus wanted to get a divine message to an angel, he would not have gone through a human being. It works the other way around. Usually when he wants to get a divine message to a human, he'll go through an angel. So we need to understand this as probably a human uh, messenger or person that would be in the leadership or in charge of the, the church um, is who he is. Is because angels also are sinless, and uh, some of these churches, if you've read through them, are told to repent. Um, and so the angels would not have been told to repent. That's not a message that you need to give to an angel um, at this point. So uh, the seven lampstands are the, the light uh, of the churches, and the seven stars then are the, the messengers or the leadership or the pastors of the churches. And so John has now been given this uh, command really from God to to write down everything that he sees and so he begins writing uh, and he begins writing this message that is strictly from Jesus to the church uh, now every pastor would love to have a letter like this directly from Jesus about their church um, even good bad indifferent because you like to kind of know, where am I at? What are we doing? Are we on track? Where are we, you know, are we headed in the right direction? Um, I say we would like to, if we got it, it might be with fear and trembling that we would sit down and, and read a letter that we knew came from Jesus on the state of how our church is doing. Um, every year we have uh, our evals, our evaluations, and I hate them. <laughs> I just, I do not like them. They're not bad. But it's the concept of going in and sitting down in front of your boss and having them talk about what you have done over the last year and how it has, you know, whether it's been 
good, bad, indifferent, and what we want to see done in the future. I just don't like those. Um, for whatever reason, my personality, I, I, I dread those. And they're always good. I mean, you're sitting with Bob and Denny, so how bad can it be? Um, but, it, it's, but it's that idea of being held accountable. And, and God now, Jesus, is holding the churches accountable for what it is he's called them to do. And we're probably now, as I said, this was probably written around 90, 95 A.D., so we are probably about 50 years, 40 to 50 years, some of these churches have been in existence for about that long. Most of these seven churches were probably started on Paul's, either his second missionary journey or when he kind of waylaid in Ephesus. He stayed in Ephesus for two years. And it was probably during those two years that, that these churches were started in his travels out from Ephesus and in that area. Uh, checking on the believers. So most of these churches are probably about 40 years old. And uh, it's, it's interesting to see how some are doing after 40 years. I mean, it's, it's pretty much the same generation that started the church is still going to be in the church uh, and probably leading the church. So um, so let's get let's get started in the first church that uh, John comes to or John is told about. He says to the angel at the church of Ephesus, right. And here's what he says. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who, who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. Okay, this is coming from Jesus. So kind of put yourself, this is what God is holding against them. You've forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and redo the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to hear from the the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So here we have Ephesus. Now, Ephesus, the kind of the culture of Ephesus is it was a very important commercial port. OK, there were probably about two hundred and fifty thousand people living in Ephesus at this time. So it was a huge metropolis, um, a key port city. A lot of import-export going on to that area. Things would come into Ephesus and then fan out to the rest of Asia Minor. Um, so most of the churches would get their goods or, you know, those cities would get their things from the port of Ephesus. And then anything that was coming not inland um, across the sea would come to Ephesus first. They were actually granted self-government by Rome. Uh, they were so friendly with Rome that Rome allowed them to kind of just govern themselves. They didn't have anyone that was overseeing, uh, strictly overseeing, um, and they were very big on emperor worship, which is probably why they were allowed to self-govern. They weren't going to be a threat to Rome. So they were following Rome very closely um, and whatever it is that they said. Um, as I said before, this was probably 40 years after Paul started the church, uh, probably started it along with Aquila and Priscilla. If you look at Acts chapter 18, uh, verse 18, 
He says, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Centria because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. So this was on his one of his missionary journeys. So he goes into Ephesus, finds a group of believers, leaves Priscilla and Aquila in charge of them, and then he goes on his way. Um, and at some point he comes back and stays there for two years um, and kind of ministers in that church as well as, as some of these other churches. So uh, Ephesus is a very key, uh, but also you got to understand that because it is such a metropolis and there are so many cultures coming into Ephesus that there's going to be like any other big port city at that time, it's going to be a sin fest. Um, it's not the best place to have a church. Well, it's the best place to have a church. It's a tough place to have a church. Um, but it's the best place to have a church. The church is ultimately needed in that city. Um, so some of the positives that, uh, that Jesus tells the Ephesians is that he, he says, I, I know your endurance and your perseverance. Here they were in the midst of some very difficult circumstances. They were operating under a value system that was in stark con contrast to the, the culture that they lived in. And so the values by which they were operating, the values by which they were living, was totally opposite of what the people were living, of what Ephesus would have been operated by. Um, and so it would have been tough, and yet they endured. I mean, for 40 years, they've been persevering, and Jesus sees that. Um, he said that you have no tolerance for wicked men. Uh, and, and that was something to be uh, commended for. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20. Okay, I'm not going to find it because it's, wait a minute. Yes, I will. I was in Philippians. Uh, verse 24 says, uh, verse 25, Therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Um, and so they, they were very true to that. Uh, they, they, they understood the truth, and, and they, were, uh, they were not going to give the devil a foothold. So they dealt with wickedness whenever it arose in the church. Uh, they were not going to tolerate uh, wicked, wicked men. Uh, they tested those claiming to be believers, claiming to be apostles. Uh, and so when someone would come in and, and want to teach or, or want to get involved in the church, they made very sure that they were believers. Um, and that's something we strive to do here. Um, you know, we, we don't let anyone teach that, hasn't, that isn't either a member, meaning they've gone through membership, or they've interviewed the elders or, or pastors to where we know where they stand and what they're presenting. Um, because you, we, we can't tolerate uh, false teaching coming in. We, we can't tolerate wickedness uh, standing before and presenting. Um, and so we need to test. And so they tested those claiming to be believers. They also hated the practices of the Nicolaitans, which Jesus also hates. And that's important for us to know because I think the spirit of the Nicolaitans is still alive and well today. Um, <clears throat> the Nicolaitans, they were, it, it's really uncertain as to their origin. Um, probably came from a person named Nicholas. Uh, and the, 
these were the Nicolaitans. Presumably, it was a, a one-time believer that began a, a false teaching concerning Christian freedom. So basically what the Nicolaitans, and it's mentioned in two or three of the other cities, what the Nicolaitans were teaching is that we have freedom in Christ, and so we can partake of the culture of the world and rely upon grace to maintain a relationship with God. Now, does that describe somewhat of the church today? Sometimes that very much describes it. We can partake of the culture of the world. We can be a part of the world and still a part of Christ. Uh, and they had taken that freedom way too far, and, and it usually ended up in sexual immorality, uh, party atmosphere. That was what they, uh, when they got together, it was a party. And uh, usually ended up in, in sexual immorality, um, heavy drinking, those kinds of things. But the Nicolaitans were saying that's okay. Uh, and and that's, that's, for them, part of worship, part of being together, part of community. Um, and that's why Jesus hates that. And he still hates that. He still hates that, that thought that I can live however I want and still come to church and feel good about that, that I can live in both worlds. Um, and Jesus says, I hate that practice, and, and we need to hate it as well uh, with that. Well, after he gives the, here's the good news, he kind of lowers the boom and says, now this I hold against you. He says, there are some negatives. Many times your strength uh, for us, if, if it is a strength, can also become a weakness or it has the potential to become your weakness and in their desire to point out falsehood they lost their first love in their desire to to rid out wickedness and in their desire to to make sure that everyone they became very legalistic in that uh, they lost their first love they forgot why they were doing all that and it became uh, it became more important to test than it did to to love and administer grace. They had forgotten love. They had forgotten their first love. Many times we think, well, that's they lost their passion for Christ. I think that's part of it. Uh, their passion for Christ had cooled down some. Um, but they had also lost uh, their passion for the lost. They were more concerned about judging and finding out where a person stood than they were loving them and caring for them and bringing them into the kingdom. And they lost then their opportunity and their love for ministry. Uh, to really care for people. So they lost their first love. They were still practicing good behaviors. Um, Jesus says, you know, that, that not tolerating wicked men, that's a good thing, but they've lost the love aspect in doing that. And so there was probably a lot of kicking out and not a lot of restoring going on in that church, that they were maintaining a right doctrine, but they were losing the grace and, and the love that needed to go along with it um, in that. Um, some of them had backslidden. You know, they were simply going through the motions. Uh, you know, remember the height from which you have fallen. Remember what a great church you were in Ephesus, you know, when we started and how energetic and how, how things were going and people were coming to know the Lord. And, and then you got into this, this legalistic kind of witch hunt and you forgot about loving people. And, and now you've kind of slid back into, into some old ways, into some bad practices, the height from which they had 
had fallen. So it's very easy for a church to become legalistic. It's very easy for a church to forget why we do what we do. And we focus on the doing rather than the being. That we're to be followers. And because we are followers of Jesus Christ, then there are things we do. But we can forget about the following Christ and we get caught up in the doing. And then that just leads to losing our first love. And then when we've lost our first love, we begin to focus on the wrong things. And then we fall from the height which we had when we were in that intimate relationship. So what's the solution to that? Jesus tells the church at Ephesus to repent. Repent. Remember. Redo. There's a sermon in there because it's all ours and there's three of them. And so when you get the alliteration and when Jesus gives it to you that easy, he says, remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Redo what you did at the beginning. And so repent, remember, redo. And we, we need to. We, we have to have these checks every once in a while. And Jesus many times through these churches says, just repent. Yeah, you, you've gone off track, but all right, let's turn around. Let's get back on track and let's do the things we did at the beginning. Uh, all is not lost. All is not lost. And sometimes we think we're, we've gone so far. Or we've been so far away. I'll never get back to where I was. Well, you won't with that attitude. But one step in the right direction is getting us back where we need to be. Uh, kind of like what Denny was talking about this morning. Um, that we need to stay on that path because of the glorious things that, that await at the end of that path. And so if we find ourselves getting off a little bit, we need to repent. We need to remember. Um, you know, we've become nearsighted and, and blind. We, we've become short-sighted. And he says you, you forget what has happened in the past. Remember what Christ has done for you. And get back on the right track and begin to correct the situation now and correct that that relationship. So Ephesus had some work to do. The Ephesian church had some work to do. They needed to get back on track. They needed to remember what they had done in the past. And, and they needed to get back to ministering to people rather than judging people. Rather than, and, and judging was okay, they just didn't do it with grace. And they needed to put grace and love back into that equation. So then we move up uh, the coast a little ways to Smyrna. Uh, Smyrna, this is to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Now, the nice thing about Smyrna, there was no, yet I hold this against you. The rough part was you're going to suffer horribly for 10 days. Um, I didn't come across anything on that. Um, one of the things we had mentioned last time is that some people understand these seven churches to be actually seven parts of church history, seven stages of church history. And the church went through the Ephesus stage and through the Smyrna stage and the Pergamum stage 
And you go back in church history and you can find correlations to each of these churches throughout history. I don't hold to that because if that's the case, then these churches got nothing. When the letter came to them, it wasn't meant for them. It was meant for somewhere way down the line. Um, and so, uh, but you can find, and like I said, you can find bits and pieces of all seven of these churches in every church, I think. I think you, you will be able to, to find that. But I, I didn't come across the, uh, the 10 years of, of suffering. But there, this church was specifically going to go through uh, 10 days of, of what sounds like some pretty intense suffering. Now, Smyrna was located in a valley. Uh, it was on the coast. It was known for its beauty. Uh, this is kind of the culture. It, was how it housed the largest outdoor theater in Asia Minor. Um, so a big amphitheater outside. Um, it, it had a, a very close relationship with Rome. And so, again, this was a city that was favored by Rome, which if it's favored by Rome, Rome's not real favorable to the church. And so the church is going to come under some suffering, going to come under some persecution. And according to these words, that's exactly what happens. I know your affliction. You're going to suffer. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer, of what is coming. Basically, Jesus is warning them, hold, just hold tight. Get through it. Live through it. Hold on to me. I will see you through. Um, this is the only city that is still in existence today of all seven of them. There is still a Smyrna. Um, the others are ruins uh, at this point. Um, it was the first in the area to build a temple to Rome. Uh, this is part of that emperor worship. They would many times worship whatever, whoever the emperor was. Kind of you could look at it as president worship. We would worship whoever the president was. We would build a temple to the president um, and worship him. And so this was the first city to do that, uh, to build a temple uh, of Rome and worship the emperor. Emperor worship was very strong. There was also a very strong negative Jewish population uh, that made life very difficult for the Christians. Uh, these were Jews that, you know, Jesus even talks about uh, here that they are uh, of the synagogue of Satan, that they really are, are not even true Jews. They're calling themselves Jews, but whatever they were doing, whatever, however they were operating, they were really more about uh, afflicting and bringing persecution to the church uh, than they were about worshiping God. And so Jesus didn't even recognize them as a true Jewish synagogue. Um, <coughs> but they were there. There was a large Jewish population in that, in that city. Um, the positive things... Uh, they had developed in the, that 40 years or so, they had developed a very rich faith. Um, they had a very, very strong character in spite of their poverty. Uh, they did not let that. And, and many times their poverty was because they were believers. We'll see this again in, in a couple of the other cities that because they were believers, it was tough for them to get jobs because they just weren't going to give a job to a Christian. Um, they were under persecution. And uh, we'll talk about it when we get to, uh, I don't remember which one now, uh, one of the, either Philadelphia or Laodicea. But um, here they were under very, very great persecution, and yet they maintained their character in the midst of it. They didn't fight back in a wrong way. Uh, however, they stood up. They stood up well. Um, their endurance uh, under the, the accusations and the allegations 
uh, that were placed upon them. Uh, Jesus says, I, I see that, and you're to be commended for that. And so whenever we face persecution, whenever things don't go our way or, or, or our values come in contrast and, and clash with the values of this world, maybe in the workplace, maybe in the school system, maybe in the neighborhood, maybe in our own family, uh, that those clash, we need to, to endure. We need to stand. We need to continue to love. We need to continue to, to, to respond the way Jesus would respond. Um, and, uh, and the church in Smyrna had done that. No negative things. There was nothing negative in this letter to them. Uh, nothing to be reprimanded for. Uh, nothing that Jesus was holding against them. The instructions that they were given was uh, warning of coming suffering and the need to remain strong in the midst of it. Sometimes things have to get worse before they get better. And this is the way it was going to be for Smyrna. Uh, it's going to have to get worse before it gets better. But you can ride through that. And that's something we need to understand. No matter what happens, we can persevere. Because Jesus is going with us. And so whatever we are facing, we can withstand it. Nothing is going to be too difficult that we can't go through. Even if it brings us to the point of death. Uh, as some of these churches, that was happening within the church because that's what Rome was doing. They were killing Christians. And so even in that intense suffering, we can persevere. Why? Because we know what happens at the end. We know what lies ahead. And, and so we can endure. His counsel was for, uh, at the end, he who has an ear, let him hear. Um, I will give you the crown of life. Uh, this is kind of the culmination of faithfulness, this, this crown of, of life that they were, were given. Um, they would not be hurt by the second death, which means you may die physically. You may go through the first death. This suffering that you're going to face for 10 days, some of you are going to face a physical first death. But the second death can't touch you. And what did we find out the second death was? Hell. That's when the great white throne and they're cast into hell. He's, he's just telling them, look, if, if you die here in this persecution, your next step is heaven. You, you're not going to have to face another death. It won't be an eternal death. It will be an eternal life um, that you will have. So remain strong. And that's what he's promising them. Even in the midst of suffering, remain strong. Then we get to Pergamum. Pergamum is up a little farther north says to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live. It's usually a bad thing, but this is actually a good thing. Um, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. He says it twice, where Satan has his throne, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. I have, you have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Now, Pergamum, that word Pergamum actually means citadel. So this is a fortress city, um, and it was very well fortified. It's the capital 
of Asia Minor. So again, a very important city. Um, it had there the great altar of Zeus. Uh, and so they worshipped the Greek and Roman gods. Um, they they worshipped Zeus. It was the fish official center of emperor worship for Asia Minor. Uh, there was a library in Pergamum that had over 200,000 volumes. So it was a very huge library, uh, especially at that time. You'll just remember those are all handwritten. Um, so 200,000 volumes in the library uh, of Pergamum. And there was also a shrine to the god of healing. Now, there were many shrines in this city. Because it was the capital city, it was the center of, of all activity that there were uh, there were shrines, there were temples to, to all of the gods uh, throughout. Now, the positive things that Jesus says is that they, they are remaining faithful in such difficult cultural circumstances. Uh, we have a church on every corner. Uh, they had one church, one Christian church, and all the others were pagan gods uh, that they were worshiping, emperors, men, uh, imaginary beings. Uh, is what all of the other churches in their town were. and so they. But they remained faithful in the midst of all that. There were people that were being martyred for their faith, and yet they did not back down on their witness. Um, Antipas, uh, history tells us that he was slow roasted over a fire. Um, that was how they killed him. Uh, they just basically roasted him on a fire until he died. Um, and that would be a very slow, painful, painful death. Um, and they would be witness to that. Um, and he's probably not the only one uh, in that area. So there was a lot of things going on that, that would, could cause them to back off of their faith, and they didn't do it. In, in spite of the persecution, they hung in there. They kept going. Um, <clears throat> and so in a city where people were killed by the sword, it was going to be a, a, an encouragement to them uh, that they were being addressed by the one who holds the double-edged sword. He said, I'm the one who holds the double-edged sword. So you don't have to be afraid of the sword, of the sword that, that men are bringing in, that they're killing people with. I have the double-edged sword, um, and truth will win out. Because we know from, from Hebrews that you know, the word of God is like a double-edged sword. And where was that? Where did that sword come from? In Jesus, when he talked in chapter 1, it came out of his mouth. So it's the word. This double-edged sword that he is carrying is his word, and, and it's truth. And so truth will always win out. And so we don't have to fear uh, when truth is being attacked because truth will always, always win. Uh, it, it can't be backed down. It can't be twisted. It can't be changed. It will always rise up and, and conquer and will always win. And so we have to hold to the truth. Now, a few things that Jesus held against them. Uh, they were beginning to compromise with the culture. You've stayed strong, but I'm starting to see some compromise here. Um, Balaam, okay, Balaam was the prophet that got uh, the nation of Israel to sin, and the Nicolaitans were being accepted in their church. Now, when they say accepted in their church, it's not just come and worship with us. They actually held leadership positions, okay? They were teaching in the church, and so... He says, you've you got to back off that. You've got to maintain purity in the truth and in the word. Um, and so they were allowing the world to enter in. Uh, they, they began living for what is now instead of the long term. They, they needed to, to live for the eternal things, not the right now. Again, they were becoming short-sighted, uh, just, just like uh, uh, Ephesus was. And so 
they they needed to to watch who they were letting come in um, and kind of take a lesson from from Ephesus and and judge them uh, you know see where they're where they're coming from before you give them uh, positions so their instruction is to repent uh, Christ is going to come and war against those uh, war against them uh, that were warring against the side of truth yes Yeah, and, th- and that's really what Balaam, if you go back in the Old Testament and read the story of Balaam and Balak, um, really they were doing spiritual things, that's a great way to put it, for personal gain. And so there were people coming into the church that were doing spiritual things for personal gain. And he said, you just got to put a stop to that. You can't allow that. And we do. We, you can very easily, that can be seen in churches today, that they're coming in just for personal gain, to, to gain something um, from it. Um, he's also in the instruction here, he's saying, you know, here, here's the importance of maintaining truth in the church. The word is to be our source of truth. Anything we learn must run through the filter of God's word first and come out. We can't just take things at face value. Well, because it was said in church, it must be true. No, check it out. Um, we're fallible. I'm human. Denny's human. Bob's human. Bill's human. Uh, you know, Justin's human. So, so when we when we share things, check it out. Uh, we're not going to purposely, you know, twist the truth, but we can be wrong. We're human. Uh, I don't think it happens very often, uh, but but you need to know. You need to maintain truth. Uh, and so, everything that you hear, um, even on video series, you need to run it through. I just got a letter from a guy, uh, or a note from a guy. Uh, you know, that was questioning some things in a video that, w- that we were promoting, that we were using here. And, and he did exactly what needed to be done. He ran it through a God filter, through the word filter, and it came out with questions the way he, as he, as he understood it. So we're, we're going to sit down, we're going to talk through that uh, to make sure that we're, we're on the same page. I hope you're getting from at least these first three that how important truth is and how important it is to know the truth and be able to distinguish truth from a lie. Because this is what was was filtering into these churches was there was compromise of truth coming in and we need to be able to discern between truth and a lie. So the counsel that they were given was that they were going to be given some of the hidden manna. These are blessings that are, are known are, that come just from knowing Christ. Uh, if they would stay steadfast, if they would endure and persevere more, then, then the blessings are going to follow. And then they were going to give a white stone. Um, and we need to understand culturally, back in those times, that when they would do a, a, an athletic event, the winner received, this was their trophy, was a white stone with the winner's name on it. So if I was in an athletic event and I won the race or I won whatever it was, I received a white stone that said Ted. And so what they were going to receive if they persevered was a white stone with a new name written on it. And this would be the name of Jesus because we, we know that there's a na- that when we get to chapter 19, we see that the white writer on a, the white horse was coming in and a new name uh, w- was his. And so... What they're saying is if you if you just hold on, if you endure and if you're steadfast and you persevere, 
then you're going to be accounted in with Christ's name as one of his followers and, uh, and receive that white stone that the winners would receive. Um, also, part of that white stone then was not only your trophy, but it was your ticket to the awards banquet. Okay, so that when they, because after the athletic events were all over, the winners were invited to, to a banquet and you had to show your white stone to get in. So here we know that there's going to be a banquet in heaven, kicking off heaven, and you've got to have your invitation. You've got to have your white stone. So the church at, at uh, Pergamum, those that were steadfast, those that held on, those that persevered, those that, that rightly discerned truth from a lie, they were going to receive their invitation. They were going to be a part of that marriage supper of the Lamb, that marriage feast, uh, if you will. Thyatira, we probably need to pick up the pace because we're only three in and we got 15 minutes. Um, <clears throat> the culture of Thyatira, I won't, I won't read the scripture. You can read that on your own. Um, this was a blue-collar city uh, with modern-day unions. Okay, so it was kind of, it was a, a blue-collar. They had uh, these workers' guilds. Uh, it, the big ones were they were producers of wool, uh, sheep, uh, and, and produced wool and dyed goods, especially the purple dyes. They had come across and been able to reproduce a purple dye, and so that was rather expensive, and, uh, and so that was one of the things they produced. They also had leather goods, pottery, bakers, slave traders, and bronze smiths. Um, and so uh, interesting that the person who comes to Thyatira, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. They would understand what that meant because there were bronze smiths uh, throughout, the, throughout the city. And that was one of the things that they, uh, one of the working guilds that they had. So each of those, there was a leather guild, a pottery guild. Each of these were workers' unions uh, that, uh, uh, that made up the culture of Thyatira. Um, there was not a whole lot of religious activity. Um, most of the religious activity would have happened through the workers' union. Uh, they would have had a patent or a, uh, a kind of a, a uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A patron deity, a patron god of leather, the patron god of pottery, the patron god of bronze, the patron god of, of wool. And that's, they would have worshipped that as a union. Now, what does that mean for a Christian? You're probably not working. Because in order to get into the union, you have to bow and worship that patron deity. And so you're probably not going to, even if you're the best leathersmith in the world, you're probably not getting in. Or you're going to have to compromise your faith in order to do it. Um, and so that's what's facing Thyatira. Some of the positive things Jesus said is that their love uh, this was the first church to be commended for their love. The others had a little problem with love. They had forgotten their love. They had forgotten grace um, and weren't operating out of that. But here, uh, their love, their faithfulness, their endurance, um, and they had seen growth, um, even to the point that they had seen an, an increase in their ministry, uh, in the work of the church had increased at this point. And so they're not not just sitting back in this non-religious society where none of them can get a job. They are ministering in the midst of it, and their ministry has increased. Um, now, some of the negative things, they tolerated sin in their midst. Uh, they allowed sin to infiltrate, to come in. They said that woman Jezebel, 
uh, they had allowed to come in. Now, this is not a, a this is probably more of a, a name that probably was not that woman's name, um, and it probably wasn't necessarily a single person. It was more of that spirit of Jezebel. If you know Jezebel in the Old Testament, she was a wicked, wicked woman. And um, death followed her wherever she went. And she was putting to death um, prophets and anyone who was following God, she was after them. Um, that same spirit was in this church, that they had allowed these people to come in. And Jesus calls them uh, that woman Jezebel, that you tolerate her in your midst. You tolerate them in your midst. It could very well have been women. I mean, if Jesus is going to call them Jezebel, it's probably a, a group of women that came in. Um, they also tolerated false teaching. Uh, they had allowed Jezebel to actually teach the doctrine in the church, to teach this, this, uh, this, this worldliness. Um, again, it was based mostly on sexual immorality that she would have brought in, um, but there was no church discipline. They allowed it to come in, and they just kind of put up with it. Um, and Jesus is saying that that can't go on. Uh, it was one thing to fall into temptation. It was worse to lead someone into it. And that's what these people were doing. These, this, that woman Jezebel was leading people into temptation within the church and the teachings and the philosophies that she was uh, sharing. And so they <coughs> compromised with the works of the world. Uh, they, they, were, they were beginning to compromise. Remember we said that if, if you... In order to get a job, you were probably going to have to compromise your belief. And apparently they were starting to do that. And Jesus is saying, hold tight. Hold tight. Uh, they were a large church uh, that did a lot of good things, but they had a cancer that permeated most of what it did. Uh, and they were unwilling to deal with the cancer because things were going so well. Ministries were growing. People were coming in. Man, don't mess with it. No, Jesus is saying, mess with it because it's messed up. You've got to get back to the truth. And so again, his instructions are repent. Hold fast to the truth. Go back, clean that out. Um, he says, I'm not going to put any other burden on you. Uh, because living with and dealing with the sin that is, is so deeply entrenched in your church is going to be enough. If you can prevail through that, if you can go in and just clean house, and get this cancer out of there, that's going to be burden enough. I don't have to lay any more on you. That's going to be hard enough. And it is. When, when, a, when a church allows a cancer to come in and doesn't deal with it, and sin after sin after sin, year after year after year, I'm thinking of a specific church I know of right now that has just allowed sexual immorality to permeate their body to where there are affairs among people in the congregation, on the church staff, and over years. Now, a lot of that, the staff's not there anymore, some of the people, but they never addressed it. They never dealt with it. And it's just going to continue to be a cancer. Even if the people leave, that woman Jezebel is still there. And they'll fall for it and continue to fall for it. So he's saying, you know what? It's burden enough to have to go through and clean that out. That's what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to repent. You're going to have to clean house. Um, continue working, but focus on glorifying Christ through it. And then they're going to receive authority. They're going to receive the morning star, which, again, is that they're going to have that connection with Christ, who is the morning star. Um, with that, they're going to reflect Christ's glory. Then we move to Sardis. Uh, Sardis was a once powerful city. 
gold and silver were, were two of the, the, the metals that they were able to, to mine from the area. Um, they had a giant temple to Artemis, another one of the Greek gods, and uh, just a huge temple that they had built. And so, again, you're, you've got a lot of this, this Roman Greek mythology and, and worship going on uh, with them. Only one thing was positive. You got a good reputation. Okay, when people look at the church, they, they think well of you. Uh, and if that's all you're going for, okay. If you just want a good reputation in town, but Jesus is saying, I need more than that. I want more than that. You've got a good reputation, but in reality, you're dead. I mean, that, that's some hard words. He says, uh, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Still doing good things. The community loves you. There's no life in it. There's no spirit in it. Again, you, you've kind of gone the way of all the others, and you've removed God from the equation, and now you're just doing stuff. And so we've got to be careful about doing stuff. There, were, there it was a church dominated by sin, by unbelief, by false doctrine. Uh, you see this is permeated throughout all of these churches are dealing with this. Um, and so here's a church that's full of works but no fruit. Uh, they had spiritual activity, but no spiritual life. Uh, and so we have to be very careful. Are we just doing stuff? You know, they, I remember growing up 20, 25 years ago, coming into ministry, and the question was if the Holy Spirit pulled out of the church, if the Holy Spirit just left, would we know the difference? Hopefully we would. This church didn't. This church, the Spirit had pulled out, but they were still turning the crank and they were still doing ministries and their community was still loving them. And I don't know what all they were doing, but the community liked them. But there was no Spirit there. There was no transformation. Uh, it had become totally corrupted by the culture. They were unwilling to deal with the sin within its own membership. And they made, uh, like unbelievers, they were just playing church. And uh, when it becomes, here's some signs of when this happens within a church. When it becomes content to live in the past. When we dwell on all the great things we used to do. Do you remember when we, well, do you remember when we, do you remember when we, I don't want to remember when we. I want to go forward. Yeah, it was great. That was a heyday. That was a wonderful thing. But if we're living back there, then we're not doing anything up here. We're not moving forward um, with that. And so when it becomes content to live in the past, uh, we're in danger of, of just of, of moving the spirit out. When it becomes more concerned over form of worship than true worship, when we're more concerned over how it's conducted rather than truly just worshiping God, you know, the style, the, the timing, the how long, the how many songs, the you know, and this has been a, a debate and a, a problem in churches for the last 30 years when they started doing these fancy songs instead of the hymns. Really? If that's what we're worried about, the Spirit's not going to have any. I don't want in that argument. I'm out. Just worship with your heart. Just worship. Pour your heart out to God. That's what he's looking for, spirit and truth. When it focuses on social concerns rather than transformation of life. And social concerns are important, 
That's why we do the baby bottles. That's why we help life choices. Those are a social concern, and we're, we're behind them. That's why we've partnered with CCR. That's why we've, we've partnered with the Lighthouse Mission. Those are social concerns. But when it becomes all that, and we lose the transformation, he says, wake up. Here's the instruction. Wake up. Those that are still holding to the truth, take action. Take back the church. Strengthen what is good. Remember the truth. Keep the truth. And once again, he tells them to repent. They're all told to do that. That's the only way to get back on the right track is to repent, to see the direction that we've gone and and get back. He says there are a few people who remain. This is the council. There are a few people who remain truthful, and they're going to be rewarded by walking with Jesus dressed in white. Okay? They're going to be dressed in white. Christ would confess their name before God as as having been in the book of life. Now, in that day, everyone's name was written in a community register. Okay, There was like a phone book type thing. Everyone's name was written. And when someone would die or they would be sent to prison, their name was erased from that book. They were no longer a part of that community. And so Jesus is saying, if you will hold fast, your name will not be erased from the book of life. And when you get, it's going to be in heaven's register, if you will, that phone book. Um, He said, so stand fast, stand fast. Philadelphia, not Pennsylvania. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right. Here's the culture. Philadelphia was of great commercial importance. Okay, there were vineyards. Um, This was, was very much an inland uh, they weren't on the shore, they were inland, but it was a, an incredibly lush area, and they had a lot of vineyards, and so they produced a lot of wine um, and, and things like that. There were temples and religious festivals all the time, because where there is wine, there is festival, okay? And if, and if your whole religious system is built upon drunkenness and immorality, and you've got vineyards galore, it's just going to be one big religious festival after another of drunkenness and orgies and all the things that are equated with Rome. This is where the church at Philadelphia was. Uh, he says some of the positive things of the church at Philadelphia, he says that I see that you have little strength. Now, this is not a comment on their power or ability, but on their numbers. This was a small church in Philadelphia. Okay, they, they had little strength. There was little numbers. It was not a big church. Yet they kept the word. In the midst of all of this revelry, all of this festivity of, of pagan gods, they stayed true to Jesus. They did not deny him. Uh, they persevered in their works in, in spite of the trials. Uh, they followed Christ's example in how to live. And yet Jesus says, even in the midst of your, your small numbers, you're not denying me. And this is the second church where there is no negative. There's no negative on this. Yeah. Or there was no correction. (laughs) Uh, The importance, again, of sticking with the truth. Um, how easy it is to be deceived. Their instruction then, because there's no negative, your little strength, you're keeping the word, you've not denied Jesus, you've persevered in the midst of horrible circumstances, I'm going to give you an open door. I'm going to open up a ministry for you 
that you've never seen before. Because they had been faithful, he was going to increase their ability to impact the city. See, that's just how God works. If you are faithful, God is faithful. God is going to open doors for opportunities and for ministry. Not only our church, but I think individually as well, we can look at it that way. And if we remain faithful, and if we're, if we're faithful to God, we're not denying him, we're living it out, and we're, we're looking for opportunities, God's going to present them. He's going to give us those open doors. They were, act, they were going to actually reach some of the Jews that had been persecuting them up to this point. Uh, and, and, uh, and so he's saying, just hold on. Continue to steadfast. Just hold on. Laodicea, the last one. Council. Um, says Jesus is going to protect them from the hour of trial that is coming. Okay, he's going to open a door. There's ministry coming. And he says, I will protect you from the hour of trial. Now, this is probably referring to the seven-year tribulation. Um, and again, kind of a, a far forward, forward look. Um, that he was going to separate the sheep from the goats. Now, some, if they take a pre-trib, pre-tribulation view, will hold on to this verse. Uh, Post-trib, I will take it and flip it on its side um, and say that he's protecting us out of, and in order to be protected out of, you've got to be in something in order to be protected out of it or protected from it. Um, Pre-trib will say the protection is removing the church from the tribulation. Um, but Jesus says, I'm going to protect you from the hour of trial that is coming. Uh, whether we read that as the tribulation or there's actually that church is going to be going through something like the 10 days of suffering uh, that Smyrna was going through, uh, I don't know. But uh, Jesus was going to protect them. So he's just saying, hold on. Uh, keep doing what you've been doing and the reward will be there. Now, Laodicea, and we'll finish up with this one, is, a, uh, is an interesting church. Um, because this is the one church that there's nothing good to be said about Laodicea. Uh, there, there was no positive thing in it. Culturally, uh, they were the banking industry. Uh, they uh, were a clothing industry. They had, uh, they had black wool, which was uh, far more expensive and desirable than, than regular wool. They had developed this black wool through the, the black sheep. Um, there was medicine. It was a medical community. So they have banking, they have clothing, they have medicine. It was probably the wealthiest city of the seven, maybe the wealthiest of that area uh, per capita. And uh, there was a medical school there. And in that, one of their specialties was eye salve, to be able to work on eyes and help people with eye problems, um, which is interesting to know as you read what Jesus is about to tell them, because nothing positive. But he says this, he says, you are lukewarm. I know your deeds. Yep, wrong one, turn the page. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. They were lukewarm. And he says, your deeds are worthless. He said, they basically, this was a church that was good for nothing. Uh, and Jesus says, I, I wish you were hot or cold. Now, some of us understand that as lukewarm being bad and that, that, uh, that it was there, they needed to be on fire for God. They needed to be hot for God. That's really not what he's talking about. Because I said, I wish you were either hot or cold. Well, if cold is unspiritual and hot is totally on fire for God and cold is totally unbeliever, God's not going to wish someone was totally cold, totally an unbeliever. What we have to understand is in a medical community, sometimes you need cold ice, put ice on it. 
sometimes you need heat in order to heal. So there are things that cold, I mean, you, if you have an ice pack, uh, I used to have an ice, uh, a pack that you could throw in the freezer and it would freeze and you'd put it on a sore muscle. You could also throw it in the microwave and heat it up. And it needed, needed to be either hot or cold. If it was room temperature, it wasn't healing anything. And Jesus is saying, you as a church aren't healing anything. You're not doing anything. I, I wish you were. But because you're lukewarm, I'm about to just spit you out of my mouth. Uh, I'm about to vomit you. Uh, and yet look at what they were known for. And you can see the condemnation. You say you are rich, but you are poor. Wretched, sinful, pitiful, didn't realize they were sinful. Okay, they were sinful and didn't know it. Here's the church who has the truth, but doesn't know, doesn't have a clue that they're not living by. You were poor, blind, naked, and yet what were they known for? Banking, but you're poor. You're, you're blind, but yet you have this incredible medical school for the eyes, and yet you're blind. And, and you're naked, yet you produce black wool. And he says, you're just so caught up in the culture, so caught up that, that you've totally lost it. And so his instruction to them is buy from me gold so that you can become rich. Come back and get what I have, not what the world has. The world has nothing to offer you of any substance. Okay, true salvation that can only be purchased through Christ, if you will. Okay, buy from me gold so that you can become rich. White clothes, not black to cover your sin and, and result in, in righteous deeds. Okay, put the white clothes back on and then salve uh, to put on your eyes so that you can see, so that you can know the truth. And this only comes through, through reestablishing that relationship with Christ. This was a church that at one point was doing all the right things. But they got caught up in the banking industry and in the medical community and in the clothing industry. And, and they got all caught up in the world and what was going on in their city. But they forgot what they were all about. And Jesus saying, come back, come back, repent, open the door. This is that, that famous picture uh, where he says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and he with me. Now, this is probably one of the most misused scripture as it is not an opening door for salvation. This is a church. Okay, it's not an unbeliever. It's a group of believers that are just off base. They've basically shut Jesus out of the church. And Jesus is standing at the door of the church, knocking, wanting back in. We so many times use this as salvation, um, that he's standing at the, at the heart of an unbeliever wanting in. And that's not, that's not what we're talking about here. This isn't a group of unbelievers. It's a group of church. Um, and so we have times where we as believers can push Jesus completely out. And then we are worth nothing. Without Christ, I can, I can do nothing. With him, I can do all things through him. And so Jesus is saying, let me back in. Let me back in. Let me put life back into this. Let me put life back into your life, into your church's life. Repent and come back. And so each one of these, as we, as we look at the church and the culture, that ekklesia, that's the Greek word for church. And it literally means the called out ones. The called out ones. The church is the ones that are called out of the culture, called out of the world. Repent, open the door, let Jesus back in. 
Okay, so, so the church are the called out ones. So we, we are to be separate from the cultural norm. We don't live by the culture anymore. We've been given a new standard, a new way of living, a higher standard. We, we have our own system of belief and behavior now. And we can see that these, all seven of these churches kind of started flirting with the culture again. And while they were called out, they started allowing the, the culture of the world to come back in and infiltrate the church at different levels. Some of them, like Laodicea, totally blew it. Some of them, like Smyrna and Philadelphia, it was there a little bit, and Jesus was just saying, watch out. Don't let it come in any farther. Get, get rid of it. Some had that cancer permeating all the way through. We have to watch that we don't allow the culture to permeate the church because it's supposed to work the other way around. The church is supposed to permeate culture because not only are we the called out ones, we're the sent ones. We are called out of the culture and then we are sent back into the culture to infiltrate with the gospel, with a different way of living, with a different philosophy, with, with a different ethical system. Culture can be defined, I've given it to you, a pattern of shared basic assumptions that was learned by a group as it solved its problems that has worked well enough to be considered valid and therefore to be taught to new members as the correct way to perceive, think, and feel in relation to those problems. And so you can get into a culture that says, you know what, the best way to deal with a bad marriage is what? Kick the bum out. Is that not the culture we live in? If your marriage hits some hard times, what do you do? Just get a divorce. We've learned and we are teaching that that is the correct way to perceive, think, and feel in relationship to a, a problemed marriage. Well, we know that that, no, we're the called out ones. It should be different in the church. But we have allowed that thinking to permeate our thinking within the church to where the divorce rate within the church is, depending on what statistics you look at, the same or higher than the divorce rate outside the church. What would Jesus say to that? One word. Repent. Church, repent. You've allowed the culture to come in. In that one area, I'm sure there's other areas. Each of these seven churches, to some degree, had succumbed to the culture within which it lived. And this was the issue that Christ had with the Nicolaitans. They were allowing, in fact, they were teaching, bring it in, bring it in. Every one of these churches was called back to truth. Called back to the truth. Come back to the basics of faith. Come back to the truth of God's way of living. And so the question that we have to ask is, what cultured norms of Butler or Western Pennsylvania have we adopted as a church that Christ may say is actually hindering our effectiveness? Did I leave that on your, at your homework for next week? I want you to answer that question. What cultural norms out there, worldly cultural norms, exist in Butler or Western Pennsylvania that we have allowed to infiltrate our thinking within the church? I don't have a list. I'm wanting you to put that list together. Okay? Come ready to share. If you don't want to share it, email it to me. Okay? 
If you, if you don't want everyone to know what you were, just email it to me. I would love to see what you guys think is the culture out there that we've allowed to permeate the culture in here. Yes. Uh, you can say surrounding churches um, or this church, either one. How have we allowed the world to permeate the church here? Okay, let me pray for you. You got your assignment. Father, we are thankful uh, for tonight, for your word, for truth. Father, for the example of these churches to, be, to, to call us back to truth. And Father, Lord, I, I know that we as a church truly do need to repent because we are sinful people. And Father, as, as a group, may, as, a, as a church made up of sinful people, uh, there are going to be times that we are a sinful church. So Father, call us out. Show us where we have gone wrong. I pray for the leadership, for, for myself and, and the other pastors, for the elders, board of advisors, for all the way down to small group leaders and, and teachers. Father, that you would show us any way we have gone astray and where we need to repent and come back to truth. Father, thank you for those guidelines. Thank you for that philosophy, that, that ethical system that you have given us. May we never waver. May we endure. May we persevere. And through Christ, it is possible that one day we too will receive the crown. And what a glorious day it will be to join others in heaven and see these seven churches there as well. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, we'll see you back next week. We'll start in on chapter four.